We've seen how a major event such as COVID can catapult so many of us into the digital age, work from home, QR codes, telehealth, just a few of the now ubiquitous adjustments in our lives. And while we might congratulate governments for adapting so quickly on some levels, there's a far broader and more fundamental discussion that needs to take place about how government and policy operate in the digital age. Martin Stewart Weeks is a strategic innovation and policy reform expert who's been writing about this and he joins me now. Good morning, Martin. Hello, Geraldine. Nice to talk to you. Um, Look, along with many other experts in the space, you say that uh, the digital transformation connecting people with government services isn't adequate or fast enough. And I know there's been a big conference about that this week. How far behind do you believe Australian governments or the Australian public service or the state public services, for that matter, are when it comes to digital savviness? Yeah, it's a good question. It's always hard to calibrate these things too um, scientifically. I mean, there are some leaders in the field that are often trotted out quite rightly, people like Estonia and Singapore and some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, Denmark in particular, uh, is often uh, uh, drawn out as uh, countries where the, if you like, the most thoroughgoing refit almost of a sort of a whole new paradigm of digital service delivery has really set the pace. So we're certainly not at that space, but I think we are, um, I think we're we're getting there. And one of the things that really came out of that conference, by the way, this week, I agree, was a very important gathering, was two things. Um, one is that, yes, we are making progress down this path in ways that are very promising. But almost everybody I heard speak, uh, whether it was from the front line of the bureaucracy or the uh, the politicians who were there, uh, kind of had a further and faster kind of method. We've got to go further and we've got to go faster. Second message, and this is often a big challenge, of course, for a country like Australia um, compared, let's say, to a Singapore or a Denmark or an Estonia, um, is that we have a very complicated game to play here across the Federation. But what I'm hearing more and more in the last six months, even certainly the last 12 months, and COVID, I think, is responsible for at least some of this, is that this is a game that we have increasingly got to play on an integrated and national and uh, common uh, basis as opposed to constantly trying to cut this game up into seven or eight different pieces and each of us trying to do bits of it on our own. Well, the awful spectre of the rail gauge (laughs) from earlier in Australia's life (laughs) rears its head. Precisely. And I think Victor Dominello, Danny Pearson, two ministers who were there this week would be the first to tell you that, you know, we're trying desperately to avoid the rail gauge problem. We've been a bit slow at getting on with that. I think COVID has reinforced the fact that, you know, um, uh, unaligned rail gauges in a digital context are are just not uh, very good and not very helpful. So we are beginning to get that lesson, I think, embedded into what I'm sensing is a much more cooperative and a much more kind of cross-border Um, capacity to get some of these big solutions and these big new pieces of what we might call digital infrastructure, these big new service platforms built on a basis that they can be much more easily shared and integrated. So, um, in a sense, I suppose the the, the theme coming through is the search for an integrated, trusted, personal identification system. This is part of it, isn't it? Now, I did read commentary that suggested that it's, like, say, Denmark has got this well and truly underway and Mm. that it's an anchor Anglo-Saxon obsession with not having a central uh, identity uh, number that is stymieing us. Now, is that fair? 
I think it's got something to do with it. I really do. You and I are old enough and other people listening to this program to remember yeah, the, the great Australian debates over the last 30 years or more around ID cards and all the rest of it uh, and single IDs. And, and in the Australian context, it's true in the UK as well to some extent, as you say, uh, as that commentary makes out in the Anglo-Saxon world. We do tend to get pretty anxious about this notion that at the core of all of this is the need to have a single trusted shareable way of describing effectively who we are and proving who we are and, and having that on either a little card or in some other digital form. It does appear certainly that in the Northern European context where that notion of essentially having a single ID all the way through your life um, is, is something that's rather more baked into uh, both culture and practice does uh, help because to some extent the underlying premise of this notion of single platforms, shared service uh, capacity and so on, does mean that as you work through those shared platforms, you've got to be able to have a pretty robust way of defining and describing and protecting who you are, the data that's then surrounding you and all the rest of it and how you engage with these services. And we're making progress. It's a bit fraught. Um, there are certainly lots of uh, bits of work now going on both at the state and federal level around um, uh, identity systems and, and the rest. They are becoming a little bit more aligned and I'm getting a sense I'm not a deep expert in some of those areas. They're quite technically complicated. No question about that. Um, but there is a sense I'm picking up that we are now reaching that phase where people are saying, honestly, we do have to get this uh, issue sorted and we have to get it sorted as much as possible on a single or an integrated Australian basis as opposed to state by state um, doing uh, at least not so much their own thing, but different things. That's what we're trying uh, to get are, through, yeah. are the Europeans or particularly the Danes, are they less worried about privacy? That's a great question. And I think there are deep cultural and sociological uh, experts who will tell you that there are different attitudes to the notion of privacy and also the notion of what it is you, if you like, owe the larger or the public sphere as a way of playing in that sphere safely and easily and conveniently. So, yes, I do think there are quite deep cultural and um, sort of social um, assumptions, if you like. Less about individualism, you mean? Yeah, kind of. I think that's probably right. There is a sense of that sense of collective uh, and cooperative um uh, work in order to get a better sort of social and public interest outcome. There does seem to be that instinct, and if it's there, I think it's a it's a very important commodity that can be very valuable in these conversations. Well, I mean, you know, thinking of all the fuss over our health card that that was yep. it didn't work exactly. eventually. So, have they not had any major transgressions or something? Because you know, with every problem, it, it, everything yeah. goes backwards, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question. And right off the top of my head, I certainly can't think of any huge um, sort of really categorical um problem that um, many of these countries have had. There are always issues, of course, around privacy and data, and we know there are always those concerns about uh, people's um, private data, particularly around the health area. You're right, it's a particularly sensitive area. You can understand why. Um, suddenly finding itself on the internet or, you know, left by left by um, somebody on the on the back seat of a bus or something in the old days when we used to have um, floppy disks. Um, I, I think the answer is that the security and identity capability of many of our digital systems have grown enormously in the past. However, there's no question, and we know about it, you know, we're always constantly mm. hearing about hacks and all the rest of it. It is a constant threat. And I think that the, the issue is the more single and integrated your system in some respects, the more vulnerable you are, therefore, to potential cataclysms of that sort. Um, but at the moment, anyway, um, we seem to be making pretty good progress on beginning to build quite robust security and identity systems that are giving us some 
greater confidence, I think, that we can we can pull this trick off. I, I think what you and others writing this week were saying is that the the aim is to make things hyper-personalised, and I'm going to get mm. to that, but also mm. it's to say to people, this is not just about getting one better government website. It's, de- mm. it's deeper than that, much deeper than mm. that. Now, what, could you please expand on that? Yeah, I can. A um, couple of things. I've, I've, I've had for a long time this sense that the whole digital transformation debate in government is about a hell of a lot more than, um, you know, better better websites or, or, or fewer more integrated websites. In other words, the technology, gee wizardry of it all, all very important, all very complicated, needs to be done terribly well. What seems to me to have been going on for some time, and I've been picking up on some other work that's been going on and some new writing that I've been coming across from the UK in particular, is that what we've got to understand that's going on here, and I'll I'll sort of quote from a particular piece of work of young a young fellow called James Plunkett, who's doing some fascinating writing around this. Is he talks about this need that we've got to upgrade the state so that it's capable of governing in a 21st century digital economy. So in fact, some big deep things are going on here that the state, the public interest, if you like, is grappling with a whole set of new forces that have been unleashed by digital technology in relation to economic value, the way that value is uh, shared and distributed, and then the way citizens engage with that process. Um, and basically his argument is that much of our um, much of our machinery, if you like, of policy making and service delivery has been found to be dramatically out of out of kilter and out of out of date, really, for an economy that's now beginning to have a completely different way of creating, sharing and distributing value. So his argument is that, yes, it it is certainly about many of the transactional issues, better service platforms, all that kind of stuff. But actually, deep down, Mm -hmm. there's what he would describe as a very, very uncomfortable but necessary paradigm shift going on here in the instincts and procedures and culture of the way we govern our economy. And it's uh, there's a bit of a mismatch at the moment and we've got to catch up, we being those of us who are interested in how the state and how government uh, manages. We've got, a, we've got a big catch-up game going on. Yes. I mean, you, along with co-authors, have outlined 10 ways the public service can make life better for citizens and redesigning yeah. how the public service and governments interact with us. Uh, with us, the population. Just, mm. just highlight, if you would, not the 10, but the main no. changes you think. I, I still think a lot of listeners, well, I can tell by the text line, will say, oh, look, yeah. this is peripheral, you know? Yeah. Or it's socialist, yeah. <laughs> some of them are yeah, right. Yeah, well, there's always, there, there is a kind of digital socialism, that's right. We're kind of, all, you know, one, one, one digital system to rule them all, um, which is a, it can be a slightly worrying concept. Uh, I mean, I think I think the number of things we put together in that article were trying to suggest two two things. One is, first of all, let's make sure we frame and understand the significance of what's going on here in relation to three particular lenses, service delivery improvement, the way in which we create new forms of productivity, and the way in which we reset and revivify, if you like, and re-energize our, our sort of democratic engagement with citizens. That, that's definitely what's going on. Once you start getting that bigger frame, then you can start doing some very, very practical things. Make things a hell of a lot simpler. Fewer websites. Don't keep asking people for the same information constantly. Start sharing information safely, ethically and appropriately, but doing it in a way which makes it much, much easier for people to do the jobs they need to get done without having to sit there at the front of the system figuring out where the hell do I start, who do I call. Mm. Uh, As we talk about in the article, we are increasingly in an age where people are less and less interested I think we use the phrase, you know, whose badge is on the uh, digital front door. 
The question is how integrated and rapidly and Does safely it work? Does it can crash? we get it done? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that matters a lot to people. You know, um, as uh, Tom Burton, who's one of the core authors of that, of that piece and who runs the, 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 the government uh, uh, round, as it were, for the Fin Review, uh, constantly reminds us, you know, government is a very, very large chunk of the economy in its own right, never mind all the other impacts it has on the economy. This stuff does matter. If we don't get this well, uh, well done and well um, organised, then the impact on people's lives, the impact on things like productivity and weight and jobs, all the things that the current government is, you know, grappling with, this stuff absolutely matters. Government, the way government plays into that game, is increasingly significant, and it needs to be right at the top of its game, if you like. Um, and yes, you're right; it can all sound a little bit kind of. Uh, transactional and sort of technical and a few boffins at the back trying to make the website run better. But actually what's happening is that government is trying to make itself um, the kind of um, significant and efficient and productive player in the bigger context um, that it's that it needs to be if the whole game is going to work as well as it needs to. Let me just tell listeners that Martin Stewart Weeks is my guest. He's a, a policy reform specialist who's been fascinated by the way government works for many years. Um, let's turn to where governments are leading the way. And it would seem that New South Wales is in front on this stuff. Uh, I noticed that the New South Wales Minister for Customer Service and digital, uh, uh, Victor Dominello has ha- had quite a, a run this week. Um, yep. And even other governments, even Victoria, <laughs> is <laughs> conceding that New South Wales is really out ahead of the rest when it comes to digital services and offerings for its population. Now, what is it that it is doing so well that other states are observably trying to sort of join in with? It's a great, it's a great question, and there is a there is a, a real outbreak of, of goodwill and, and and friendship going across the New South Wales Victoria border at the moment, which I think is great, um, and I think it's happening across other borders too. By the way, um, the first thing Victor Dominella will tell you is the first thing you've got to do is start about eleven years ago. Um, so basically, this journey, <laughs> basically this journey started when um, um, Barry O'Farrell came in uh, and, and a number of others. Yeah, exactly. He's Premier of New South Wales and started the Service New South Wales Revolution. Um, so, yes, it's a long journey, right? This has taken at least a decade and it is still going on. But a few things that have happened that I think are really powerful. The first is that you've got to start driving at the political level a certain amount of um, for, no, yeah, a certain amount of force change in the simplification of the number of platforms and the number of pieces of the technology uh, puzzle that you're going to have. So Service New South Wales and the digital platforms underneath it are now increasingly common across government. Not an easy game to play because most agencies and most pieces of government will always tell you that they need to have their own little piece of the pie because they're special, they're different, and they need their own uh, engagement. So you'll find that people like Dominello uh, and the premiers that he has been fortunate enough, I think, in some respects to work with have been prepared to drive quite a hard bargain with ministers and therefore with bureaucrats to say, no, no, we can't do that anymore. We've got increasingly to have fewer larger, more competent and more capable platforms, which is essentially what Service New South Wales has become. So that's the first thing. The second thing you've got to do is invest in a lot of work, a lot of hard work. And as I say, it's well over a a decade now and still going a lot of hard work in what I would call technology rebuild and technology design, everything from your websites, the service uh, platforms beneath that, the information systems, the digital, uh, sorry, the identity and the security systems that go underneath that and so on and so forth. Some of that work is still not finished um, by any means, but it is beginning to move. So essentially what you're trying to do and what I think Victor has been so um, successful in arguing both at the political and then driving it through the 
um, administrative level is that we just need a system with fewer moving parts. That's essentially the simplest way of arguing what New South Wales has done. And the truth is, it bloody well works. And we've had so many good reasons now to test that. Well, when I say good reasons, difficult reasons. Yes. COVID, fires, floods. When this stuff hits and you've got a robust system that is made up of a few incredibly effective and widely shared platforms that allow people to navigate their way through, whether it's getting help if they're in the middle of a flood um, or getting out notices in the middle of COVID, it's just quicker and it works. The last thing I would quickly say, and I think uh, uh, the minister would agree with this, particularly in the last couple of years, is the movement of this game right into the heart of government. And by that, I mean basically on a par with Treasury. And therefore, it really? means that when... Oh, yes. Now, I think what's happened in New South Wales is that decisions about where to invest and how to invest are taken in, at a central level where there are conditions being put then on, on agencies and ministers to say, yes, we're very happy to help you build your digital tools and your digital um, capability, but it's got to be done in a certain way. Otherwise, we're not going to give you the money. It's kind of almost that tough. So you'll find now that Victor Dominello is buried quite correctly, in my view, right at the heart of the decision and, and resource allocation process in government. And that's the point mm. at which at which change starts. And of course, one of the things, I mean, we've got to go shortly, but, you know, the yeah. delivery to the flood victims, that was apparently one of the ways in which it was absolutely stress tested. They got, I mean, I know there's a lot who will instantly text me and say they haven't had all that they no, need. indeed, but, and it's not perfect. And exactly. But obviously it was better for the floods than for the fires, for instance, because things had no. moved along just that much. No question. And mm. one of the speakers at the conference, interestingly, quickly, Rebecca Skinner, who runs the Service Australia um, at the national level, very much based on much of what we've learned from Service New South Wales, had some very powerful statistics about how astonishingly quick some aspects of that flood relief were, particularly at the Centrelink level, if I can go to federally just briefly. The truth is the investment in this kind of digital and technical as well as governance reform does pay dividends and it is paying dividends. It is not perfect. I absolutely understand that. I read those texts too and I read those Twitter complaints and, and, and it's not completely smooth, but compared to where we were a decade ago, it's chalk and cheese, it really is. And can we I, are on the road and we are going to go further. Can I just ask you one quick one? Singapore's mm. launched a digital academy to train its public servants in yeah. digital skills, including the senior ones, I gather. Yeah. Um, where are we on that score? We're getting there. Um, we have a similar uh, or something similar that's beginning to develop in at the federal level, the Leadership Academy. I think the infusion of digital into the way in which we train our public sector leaders, I would say, has made a lot of progress in the last few years. But my own personal view is it has to go a hell of a lot further. The other place that we can look to is Canada, who've done some wonder, and actually some of the South American countries, some amazing work that says really now we've got to the stage where we cannot let our public sector leaders at every level, including the senior people, progress much further without having a pretty sound capability in the ability to use and apply these kinds of new tools. Yeah. So that game is going to have to lift very rapidly as well. Mm. Martin Stewart-Weeks, thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure. Nice to talk. Thanks, Geraldine. Martin Stewart-Weeks, who's part of a group who was uh, taking part in a, a big conference, I think um, hosted by the Financial Review this week on digital skills. And thank you for all your very interesting texts on that as well. Well, up next, the CWA and the wonder of it. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.